Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, which is committed to providing our community with voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of today's forum. If you're listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we invite you to visit us in person. Our winter series begins on February 17. Further information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. It's my pleasure to welcome to the forum today the fourth and final speaker in our fall series on media ethics. Kathy Halbreich is the director of the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis. Before coming to the Walker in 1991, Ms. Halbreich was the founding curator of the Department of Contemporary Art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. She also served as the director of the Albert and Vera List Visual Arts Center at MIT, where she worked with architect I.M. Pei in designing the building. Their efforts together prefigured the current expansion of the Walker Art Center. Ms. Halbreich has been recognized nationally for her cultural influence and her business acumen by publications from Art News to Newsweek to Vanity Fair. At our forum today, Ms. Halbreich will consider the impact of media coverage on the arts in her presentation entitled, Expanding the Picture, the Missing Pieces in Arts and Culture Reporting. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Kathy Halbreich. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here today and to see and speak to so many friends, new and old. I'm especially grateful because I know it's a little odd for the director of a cultural institution to be speaking about the ethical dimensions of the media. In truth, I've backed into this arena, pushed in many instances by artists to look at the world more critically. For example, I became more attentive to painful questions such as who is and who isn't represented in the media through the work of artists, primarily artists of color, who began in the 1990s to explicitly dissect how they were reflected in the mainstream outlets. Such larger cultural questions often shape the art of our time, which is why art is a marvelous filter for grappling with the values that we share as well as those that might be unfamiliar to us. In thinking about how to expand the intellectual frame for arts criticism, I hope to examine in the next 30 minutes or so some of the ways the problems in art criticism reflect the broader challenges we face as a society. But first, we have to understand how the ways in which we get our information has been radically transformed. For many, especially those who grew up with the TV control in one hand, and the other on a computer keyboard, the definition of media is changing, and consequently, so are the forms the media is taking. We've been abandoned by the trusted father figures, such as Walter Cronkite, who, when things turned bad, modeled the proper emotional response for us. Today, dad has been replaced by guys and dolls. Even the commentators on Al Jazeera look like the Hollywood version of a blown dry anchor. 
multiple sources of authority and news exist in the global world. Sadly, old standards such as the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the BBC, Le Monde, and CBS recently have confessed to sins of omission and exaggeration, to say nothing of lies. This leaves motivated citizens to piece together their own news show every day. Similarly, every kid with an iPod is his own DJ or her own curator, sharing programs with friends. Kids increasingly sophisticated about and skeptical of the media demand more from the commercial sources which distribute art and information. And it's worth paying attention to their needs and concerns. Remember, Napster, an innovative peer-to-peer -peer file sharing network, was invented by a 19-year-old college dropout who wanted to create a music community. Instead, he changed the recording industry. Similarly, Radio Revolt, a recent public project of the Walker's 12-member Teen Arts Council, grew out of the kids' disappointment with the limited range of artistic and political voices they heard in the mainstream media. Under the guidance of two artists, they set up workshops across the Twin Cities to help people build legal, low-wattage radio stations. The signals could be heard for only a single city block, but one determined participant put the transmitter in his car and drove around town broadcasting music by independent bands he found on the internet. I was particularly impressed by the language the kids used to advertise their project. They wrote, got a problem with the media? Most everyone does. And the range of criticism is broad. It revels in violence, sex, and banality. It represents minorities unfairly, if at all. It's owned by a handful of corporations whose one-size-fits-all programming is wiping out unique local voices. These complaints cross all divides, yet most people aren't aware of the power they're supposed to have. The airwaves, the TV and radio signals travel on are owned by the people." End quote. This project was convinced, conceived last spring and ended on October 28th when people gathered in more than 42 homes, businesses, and community centers along University Avenue, stretching from the rail yards of Northeast Minneapolis to the state capitol. There they broadcast a diversity of ideas, music, conversation, and random noise. The kids hoped their art project, literally a, mechan uh, a mechanism for amplifying their voices, would suggest to others the importance of using their voices to vote. When I'm feeling optimistic, and that happens occasionally, I believe the kids' dreams of a more diverse media in the hands of many is our collective future. One positive outcome from living in an increasingly fragmented country and world, one in which politicians as well as advertisers analyze and address us 
by our preferences for specific cars, specific cereals, or specific sexual practices, among thousands of other categories and segments, is that there are more perspectives out there for those of us willing to troll the streams of data. While the news, information, and criticism we find increasingly represents more targeted points of view, narrower points of view, the forums for such material have multiplied, allowing more ideas to surface. Wanting to understand the breadth of possibilities, I asked one curatorial fellow at the Walker, who of course still reads the monthly art mags, what other sources he found useful. He told me he checks artnet.com, which updates its magazine section twice a week and keeps an hourly record of art world gossip, cruises by eflux.com, a clearinghouse for visual arts related information that updates its announcements three times a day, dashes over to the Hong Kong based Asian art archives and then quickly peruses the online versions of the Strib, the New York Times, San Francisco Bay Guardian, the LA Weekly, and the Village Voice before beginning his workday. While I can't compete with that young staff member, I don't think I have that many brain cells, I do think of myself as a media junkie. Just ask my husband what it's like to be with me in some remote and potentially romantic spot on a Sunday, and he'll regale you with tales of my desperate attempts to locate a New York Times. Like any addict, I have a love-hate relationship with that which allegedly expands my vision. The love part goes back to my early adult life when I worked as a peon for three newspapers in three cities. On an ancient typewriter in Chicago, I learned to write photo captions with three carbon copies for the Chicago's American during the summer of 1967. A summer when Detroit exploded in flames, when Charles Percy, the Republican candidate for the Senate, asked the newspaper not to print speculation on who murdered his daughter, and when Jane Mansfield was decapitated as her car slid under a truck, and the front page caption, I did not write it, regrettably explained that the arrow indicated the placement of her head. I learned a lot that summer before college. I learned why my black colleagues saw the news from uh, Detroit differently from how it was reported. I learned that politics play a role in both the placement and content of the news. And I learned vulgarity as well as controversy sells. So the hate part of my media addiction is much more complicated than the love part. A few findings from a recent Columbia School of Journalism survey of art critics at general interest news publications reminded me of the loss of my youthful innocence and reflect, I fear, some of the larger cultural conditions I've tried to sketch quickly. Think of them then as the conditions under which both cultural institutions and media outlets operate. First, money speaks. 
For example, reviews of the visual arts, including architecture, receive half the space taken up by television stories, and one-fourth the space given over to the movies, both of which have significantly larger marketing budgets than museums or galleries do. This probably won't change. While I firmly believe in the need to open our institutions to a broader audience which more accurately reflects the diversity of our communities, I think it's dangerous for cultural institutions to consider themselves part of the entertainment industry in an effort to become more populist. While our content should remain distinct and our nonprofit mission different, the simple economic truth is we can't compete. For example, the Walker's entire annual $15 million budget pales next to the $125 million used to market the new Polar Express movie, which cost $170 million to make. Some experiences, just like the pursuit of some knowledge, should not be, should not be market-driven. This means that critics may have to entertain an expanded field of references in evaluating our programs. We're not running beauty contests or measuring ourselves simply by numbers of dollars earned or visitors attracted. Since we undertake scholarly research and offer experiences for both the novice and the expert, it's possible to think of us as akin to an educational institution. While some of what we do should have the broad appeal of an introductory course, it's helpful to remember that classes become smaller as students become more specialized. Similarly, there is value in a tightly focused project, be it visual arts or music or theater, which appeals to a few of the most devoted or informed while providing the foundation for future scholarship in a new area. Which brings me to the second finding in the Columbia study. The new is often considered less significant than anything that appears in a gold frame. What role, then, do critics have in giving shape to ideas, experiences, and values that may not be familiar? Alas, the report suggests that mainstream activities, which mirror past artistic hierarchies, are most often associated with excellence. Why? Because many critics say they are, quote, lukewarm about performance art, postmodern art, digital art, and art heavily informed by theory, end quote. While I appreciate those feelings, they don't reflect the direction and hybrid nature of contemporary practice, leaving me to wonder if the job of the critic is to reflect the status quo or to lead the way. And as artists move towards forms in which the disciplines converge, an artist such as Matthew Barney, for example, is a filmmaker, a sculptor, and a performer, will need critics with a broad enough artistic range to be able to make appropriate judgments. Very, very, very few of those critics exist today. 
The third point of the study gave me real pause. We don't know what we don't know. And what's worse, we don't want to. Myopia and the parochial seem to rule. An astonishing statistic popped up in the Columbia report. Although, quote, the art world is among the most international of cultural industries, well over half of American art critics never, never write about events in other countries, and almost a third do not write about art in other parts of the United States, end quote. As the world grows smaller, both critics and museum directors share a key question. If much of what we see is a function of our own perception, our own autobiography, how do we expand that lens? I, like you, live in the middle of the country in a state where the Mississippi begins to separate east from west. Once a sinecure of northern Europeans, everyone knows Anderson can be spelled S-E-N. Today, 80 languages, 80 languages are spoken in the Minneapolis public schools. Global is a word with local associations. The ways in which we are increasingly connected and divided as individuals, communities, and cultures make our jobs more difficult. It's not enough to know what we know. We also must struggle to define what we don't know. We need to set aside time from our daily pressures to become better global citizens and consequently better community partners. For example, the Walker Art Center recently com completed a four-year research project funded by the Bush Foundation, which twice a year brought advisors from South Africa, Turkey, Brazil, India, Japan, and China to the Walker for a five-day meeting with colleagues in the curatorial and education departments. Our advisors were asked to broaden our understanding of the different criteria and traditions by which artistic decisions might be made. For example, we learned our colleague from South Africa, a director, preferred to make what we call curatorial decisions in a consensual manner and was determined to maintain traditional art forms as a way of slowing assimilation. However, our Chinese colleague who remembers the Red Brigade coming to his parents' home and smashing all of their classical records, honors the individual voice and celebrates the new as a way of suggesting his kinship with contemporary ideas. What I'm trying to suggest here is that the old-fashioned notion of capital T truth may be replaced by multiple small t truths. I wish news agencies gave their art critics time and money to travel outside of their region and disciplines. I wish editors encouraged critics to take risks, to write think pieces, rather than rush to reviews. This isn't just self-serving, as I believe we increasingly look to the daily media for contextual analysis, as the raw information the news as we once knew it, is delivered immediately from other sources. 
I wish truth were made more complicated, or maybe just looked more like I think it is. Imagine a newspaper printing two competing critical views of the same artistic activity and opening their pages to the critical opinions of readers and experts other than their own. By the way, you might be surprised to know that one local foundation offered a grant for just such activities to a local newspaper and was turned away. Not for the obvious um, possibility of conflict of interest, but rather because they didn't think they needed it. I wish news agencies would understand that a unilateral history shaped exclusively by a Western optic or Western definition of modernism no longer helps us understand the world we share. At the Walker, we're looking for a history of art which makes visible the competing values, narratives, and beliefs of those from down the street and around the globe, from a yesterday of 7,000 years ago or a today lit by the smoke of war. As those responsible for shedding light on ideas and practices from around the globe, critics, curators, and educators clearly can't be experts in all of the world's cultures. But we can open our fields, our pages, our galleries, our websites, our stages, and our classrooms to those who are. This is risky business as it requires a subtle shift in determining who represents and owns expertise. It means potentially giving up some of the rules, some of the guidelines and stories we grew up believing were absolutely, rather than conditionally, true. All too often, the news is reported and art critiqued without entertaining the possibility that cultural differences may result in different criteria of quality, a greater elasticity of meaning, and a broader sense of the traditions out of which meaning is made. For example, imagine how a scene could be misunderstood if a critic analyzing a moment in a Japanese movie in which an elderly character is dressed in white did not know that white, rather than black, is the color most often associated with death in Asia. I wish critics would dwell less on the finished product because the stories surrounding how a work of art came to be add historical, cultural, or social context to the criticism and provide the receiver, my audience, the critics, readers, or listeners, with greater critical tools of their own. Looking at and criticizing art requires doing your homework. Real criticism cannot simply be an intuitive act based on personal preferences, nor is it absolute truth. Although I wish critics could admit, and curators too, their own idiosyncratic views of the world and share their own influences, the ways in which their taste was formed with all of us. I also wish there would be a way for us to share what we know with each other without compromising the independence of the critic or 
the artist or institution. For example, the curators at the Walker have done a lot of research necessary to create a context for understanding a contemporary dance about the civil rights movement involving performers from the Ivory Coast and music from the Mississippi Delta choreographed by an African-American artist from St. Paul who danced with Meredith Monk and cites the sculptor Bruce Nauman as an influence, or a laboriously handmade painting incorporating through the use of Adobe Illustrator floor plans of modern African buildings by an Ethiopian-born artist now living in Harlem, or a film of a squatter's community living in half-finished villas outside of Beijing made by a 45-year-old man who received a master's degree in oil painting, or a sculpture about a nomadic culture by a 56-year-old Turkish woman who says, quote, the gaze on the Orient never changed since the 16th century until today, end quote. These are examples of work shown recently or about to be presented at the Walker. Is it possible for us to partner with those whose job it is to criticize us in order to provide a more informed context for our shared audiences? I realize we have to be judged by standards other than our own, but I believe it's crucial for a critic to make those standards legible to all, as well as to make an effort to understand the standards by which we live. While I've tried to show the relationship between ways of thinking about a 21st century universe and engaging in art criticism, I realize there are no easy answers. However, as an aging museum director, I'd like to share two lessons which have been important to me and may be useful to all of us, critics included. First, our audiences are far more intelligent and open than we think. We just have to learn to trust them more. A classical music critic from the New York Times writing about her colleague's concern for the future of classical music told a wonderful story about how her former college roommate discovered absolutely by accident the Chinese-born composer Tan Dun long before he wrote the film score for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The critic writes, the biggest crisis in classical music today is taking place in its major, possibly outdated institutions. Some, by the way, think this is also the case for museums. The symphony orchestras trying to sell thousands of tickets, the record labels looking for blockbuster recordings. She continues, so I was the one at fault for defining my former roommate as having no interest in classical music, then being surprised when she had some. It's true that she's not particularly interested in those major classical music institutions, much as they would love to attract her, an educated, employed city dweller on the cusp of 40. I would guess that she's never been to an orchestra concert in her hometown. She probably didn't think of Tan Dunn's music as classical, but she found him without the help of a critic, thus demonstrating something that has become ever truer in our society of iPods and other digital players. And the critic ends, 
people tend to find the music that interests them. This is the best omen, she says, for the future of music in general. Trust our audiences. The second lesson is we can't afford to turn away from the voices and vision of young people. They tend to be less convinced that the way things are, are forever. They tend to be less fearful of the future. And if my son is any example, they're ruthless about calling attention to an adult's hypocrisy. Those characteristics are, to my mind, the qualities of a great critic. And we all can use them as we go about our daily business of making sense of a changing world of words and images. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to share some of these thoughts with you. Thank you, Kathy Halbreich. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, pastor of Westminster Church and moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Kathy Halbreich, director of the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, who has spoken to us on expanding the picture, the missing pieces in arts and culture reporting. While the, the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like again to thank the sponsors of today's forum. The General Mills, Nash and Baker Foundations, Barnes and Noble Booksellers, The Rake Magazine, and Skyway News. We also want to thank the many generous individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the leading ethical questions of our time. Ms. Halbreich, if you would return to the podium, I will present the questions from our audience. First question concerns culture wars. If one were to believe the media, we are involved in a fierce culture war in our land. Do you agree? Unfortunately, I do. Um, I don't know how much you want me to really say about this, but um, I think often art is used for political ends. And I think we have seen in the last 15 years or so examples of artists, primarily artists of color, artists who are gay, or women artists, who are used to um, create or distract people from thinking about their work and thinking about how their work can be manipulated for a certain message. Follow-up question related to uh, the talk of values in America today arising from the recent political campaigns. Do those talks spill over into the world of the arts, and how does that happen? Um, of course. I mean, I think the arts are about making visible or auditory values of individuals and communities. Um, there's no such thing as art without value. Um, I think all I want to say about the last election is that it may be very confused about the word values. Um, I've always thought of myself as a principled and valueful person, even though I found myself often disagreeing um, with those who thought they owned values. Um, I think 
the wonderful thing about the arts is that you can be exposed to values other than your own and nobody gets hurt. It's just a way of seeing a bigger picture, a bigger universe, and a bigger world. And I worry sometimes um, that my own country, which I love, is becoming narrower and narrower in its focus, less international, um, less committed to understanding the values of people, let alone artists, from cultures um, that we never considered our own, but increasingly are becoming our own as this country becomes more diverse. And that's what I was trying to talk about um, in um, hoping that the media would realize there are many, 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 many interesting stories told by artists and individuals in this country, and we're hearing all too few of them. Yet another question in the same vein. This is something on our listeners' hearts and minds. How do you see the rise of conservatism as a threat to the free thinking of art and cultural historians? And particularly, how does one engage uh, a set of values that would be perhaps quite different than that which is producing particular types of art? This is a great thing we should be talking about, I think, for several hours. Um, one of the hypocrisies my child points out is that he says, despite my um, intentions to be a tolerant person, I'm really very intolerant. Um, and that I don't often look at um, things that I don't believe are true or good, or um, I guess you could say maybe open-minded. So I think um, what we have to learn to do somehow is talk to each other rather than at each other. But I actually don't know how to do that. Um, and I recently actually visited um, an evangelical church because I was very interested in seeing what the service was like, contemporary music was played. And I must say I was kind of astonished when the pastor said, with his Argyle sweater and his Madonna-like um, microphone as he walked through the 5,000 seats. We are in the midst of a culture war, and we know evil when we see it. And I really was kind of, um, it's, not, it's not what I thought um, meditation or reflection or religion or art was about. I think of art as opening myself to ideas, some of which I may absolutely abhor, some of which may scare me, some of which may thrill me, some of which may change my life. It's not about narrowing the focus. Just to clarify for our listening audience, the church to which you refer is not, in fact, Westminster. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it will remain nameless. A uh, question about criticism. We all agree on the need for more informed criticism for Sunday newspaper think pieces, for more coverage of the arts in general, but how in practice and reality can we get local papers and broadcasters to provide more informed criticism? I think when they realize it's in their self-interest, they will do it. Um, and I, I guess I want to um, also say that we have a remarkable um, history here in Minnesota through NPR and PRI and others for um, producing programs that um, 
do like this one give us an opportunity to hear each other and talk to each other and maybe debate each other. Um, but I think, um, for example, newspapers are really struggling with their survival. Um, young people are not reading the newspaper that gives you ink on your fingers. And so I think what I've hoped to do is not be critical, really, of the press, but to offer them a sense of how my son, for example, or other teens that I work with might find them imperative as opposed to um, really on this very periphery of their lives. But it's all, I think, about self-interest, I'm afraid. Until really um, we get back a media that, as the teens at the Walker said, really understand that it's owned by the people, you know, and we're all very different from each other, even though we share things um, that we treasure with each other as well, until really we also, all of us listening and um, really make demands of the media. You know, talk back, because I think our voices are very important and are often missing. A follow-up question. Uh, what is the difference, one of our listener, listeners asks, between the media presenting a critique of art or a review of art. Is there a difference and how would you describe that difference? One of the things that I've actually found troubling is um, the increasing blurring of the role of a reporter and the role of a critic. Because a reporter is really, at least theoretically, disinterested. A critic is at least theoretically giving us a personal point of view, sometimes wrapped in more authority than they might deserve. Um, and so I do think there is a difference between um, criticism that tackles a broader set of, set of ideas out of which the art might have come, as opposed to a review that is about a single performance and whether or not you should buy tickets to it. One of our listeners observes, in their opinion, that we live in an area that is deprived of arts criticism. How can arts organizations play a much more forceful role in supporting or funding or uh, creating independent arts critics? And this person doesn't see that as a conflict of interest, but in fact helpful to the arts organizations themselves. The media is a business, and I don't think we can forget that in terms of what is represented there and what isn't. What impact, if any, do arts critics have on the type of work that artists choose to create? Just to go back a minute to the other question, which is a very good one. Um, for example, many newspapers, I attended this conference of editors, um, newspaper editors, um, and I was asked to talk to them about some of the things we're talking about today. And I recognize that you know, newspapers have limited funds, so they can't have a critic in every um, discipline. But is it possible for um, a newspaper in Des Moines and a newspaper in Minneapolis to share a critic? Um, why don't we see more of that? Um, so I think maybe um, the media isn't as inventive itself as it could be. 
So the question was? The question was the impact arts critics have on the type of work that artists choose to create. I would say um, yes and no. I would say um, you can't spend your life making something for somebody else. Um, but you can spend some of your life thinking strategically about what you see on the stages and screening rooms and uh, galleries. And I think you see this very often in um, supposedly the best art schools in this country where the kids are enormously sophisticated and they do make work that you could say was of our time but you could also say um, was a pastiche on those things that they know are selling or getting written about. Um, but I don't think you can live a life doing that. You began your, in your talk referring to the wide open technological possibilities that are uh, uh, available in our age. Uh, there's another reality, particularly about media in our age, and that's the trend of consolidation and growing conglomerates who control more and more of the media. Uh, is it possible to actually expect these technological innovations to expand the horizon artistically, given the conglomerates and media? I, I think, um, yes, it's happening already. Um, what was kind of remarkable about the program the teens did at the Walker was they were very conscious about wanting to get enough people together to um, compete with Clear Channel. Um, that was their dream, and of course, they didn't make that happen. But um, I think whether you read blogs or whether you um, just go online, get your kid or grandson or um, whomever to take you on a tour, there's an amazing range of information, some of it very good, some of it rabidly stupid. Um, but yes, I think that the technology is kind of potentially atomizing the power of the three corporations that control really the news we get and the images we see. And a follow-up question to your comments about the technological innovations. Is the museum a cultural anachronism today? Well, I don't think so, but... Um, I suspect that <laughs> you would say that. But, uh, but you know, clearly um, artists need to see us sometimes, need to see the mainstream organizations as dinosaurs. I mean, I think it's a very stimulating goad to making really good work. I actually think cultural institutions that are thinking about what it means to be both a cultural and an institution are really on the cusp of some remarkable change. And I hope actually, um, Walker, when we reopen on April 17th with the new expansion, we'll begin to suggest that cultural institutions are places where you can have artistic experiences, educational experiences, and social experiences. They're not white boxes where you have to like everything. Um, I think one of the most liberating things for me was to realize when I said to people, you know, I don't really like everything we show. People were so relaxed suddenly. They could look for themselves. And I think the kind of um, idea that we speak with one voice of authority, and that voice is truth, is an anachronism. 
but I think that um, institutions that can really show us what we think about what has meaning to us in the greatest diversity will survive. One of the things I do know about cultural institutions, I don't know whether it's true of Westminster as well, is that people tend to come to museums in large measure for a social experience. They usually come in twos. And I think as our communities offer less and less for us to do together, cultural institutions actually have an even more powerful role to play as conveners, as bringing people together, as places where we can safely disagree. In response to your comment, I would not want to link the word museum with Westminster. Uh, however, it is true that an uh, institution like this and like yours serves to build community where community may not exist. Money talks. In our fall series on media ethics, we've learned that repeatedly. It drives the media, the, the nature of what's told on the news. Does the same thing happen in the arts? Is it market-driven? Are the marks market-driven? Um, yes, to some extent we are. Um, it's the reason that you hear Beethoven played repeatedly, Shakespeare seen repeatedly, and Monet uh, exhibited. Um, this is sort of what I mean in a way by the introductory course. I do think that um, it is a way for people to um, come through the door initially. I just don't, because they know the name, it's familiar. They know they're supposed to think it's important. Um, but I don't think that's where our mission ends. And I think that's the confusion. Um, but I am really, really worried about um, cultural institutions becoming, again, part of the entertainment industry. And I'm worried about what it means when one of my most beloved institutions, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, is charging $20 a ticket. Um, now, I understand why they may need to do that. And so my plea would be, for anybody who really cares about um, the freedom, the artistic freedom of cultural institutions, it's up to you to support them. And um, you know, I think it's why we support public radio and television as well. Um, you know, we can't survive on air. Um, and I think um, what I have found, again, this is why I think our audiences are smarter than we give credit for, if we're really committed to becoming a more diverse institution, which the Walker has been for well over a decade, and we begin to show things that don't look like me, other people come to see themselves. And um, I still believe that it is po um, possible to, um, in aggregate, be successful in terms of numbers, but not capitulate entirely to just showing things we all know over and over and over again. You know, Monet in winter, summer, spring. Uh, kind of a follow-up question about the link between the thriving arts scene and the common good. What kind of relationship exists between the arts and the common good? I think it's um, an enormous link. Um, I can tell you a, a wonderful story about um, one of the artists I mentioned in my talk, not by name. Her name is Julie Muretu. And she was the Ethiopian-born artist um, who we 
showed before she became as famous as she is today. Um, and we showed her um, first in a exhibition with many other young artists, and then we did her first one-person show with her, which traveled around the country. But perhaps most importantly, um, as we came to know Julie, we came to know that she shared, as part of her artistic palette, an interest in the common good in community. And she noticed when she came to visit that there were so many um, new African immigrants to um, Minneapolis. And she developed a year-long artisan residency, which involved um, Somali youth from Roosevelt and Edison High. And they came to the Walker rather routinely. They were each given um, a backpack that contained what Julie called the instruments for self-ethnography, tape recorders to tape their parents, um, photographs, uh, cameras to take pictures of the traditions that were important in their life. Um, now, part of it was to give these kids the tools to see themselves in a new homeland, um, and not to really turn them into artists, but to actually say to a young Somali woman, you have a voice, um, and we're interested in your story. Along the way, the Hennepin History Center found out about the project, and um, the archives of what these kids generated now is at the Hennepin History Center. And it's said to be by one of the curators there, the most extensive archives of first generation immigrants that they have. So I like to think, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, um, we will be able, I won't, <laughs> but somebody will be able to look back and see what it meant to be um, a, a Somali youth in Minneapolis um, at the turn of the century and to have images and songs and um, things like that. So that's just one example, I think, of the ways in which both artists and institutions um, have to be part of the larger civic dialogue. And it's one of the reasons why the new Walker expansion faces Hennepin Avenue, um, the busiest street in the Twin Cities. It wasn't an accident. It was really a symbol of our rootedness in the city. Now, you mentioned the New York Times and uh, several websites. Are there any other places that people who are interested in independent creative art criticism could uh, should go to receive that? Um, you know, there are hundreds of magazines that are published all over the world, and many of them are in our library, public library, which I um, deeply believe or critical agents of democracy as I do public education. So I would say um, check out your local library, use it. Um, and I would even say to you that librarians can be fantastic guides to the internet. Um, and um, they really are wonderful curators of knowledge. So um, my family uses the public library. I would hope all families did. Thank you, Kathy Halbreich, for expanding our understanding today of the uh Missing Pieces in Arts and Culture Reporting. We're grateful for your being with us. We invite all of you to join us for the Westminster Town Hall Forum's next series, At Home in America, beginning Thursday, February 17th, with Mary Pfeiffer, author of Reviving Ophelia and the Middle of Everywhere. Thank you, Kathy Halbrush. Thank you so much. <laughs>